From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Manhattan, New York, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Joanna, what's going on? Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So um, Manhattan, New York, huh? I figured I had to make the distinction, the borough distinction. Mm -hmm. Let the people know you're in the other borough. I get it. So, you know, you've you've been a a listener to the podcast, obviously. So you know how we start these things off. Mm -hmm. Um, What have you been up to? What have you been drinking? And you can go further back than just a week if you want to. Oh, great. I have a whole list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So recently I went to Essex Market on the Lower East Side, which they recently reopened. Yeah. And there's a Top Hops there, which is a really cool beer store, which their location on Orchard Street, I think, recently closed. It did? Yeah. I think it just happened. So they just had I love Top Hops. Yeah. It's a cool spot. Oh, man. Okay. So we were there, and I got some Plum Goza from Transmitter Brewing, which was really interesting and refreshing. Felt like a good summer summer beer. Nice. That's Mm -hmm. that's cool. Anything else? This is a little further back. I had recently had a really interesting white Rioja, which I've I I don't know a lot about white Riojas, but it was really delicious. Um, The maker was Sierra de Tolonio. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. I feel like you don't see a lot of like white Rioja. Like I know, I mean, obviously it exists and you hear people talk about it, but like, I definitely don't see it on lists. I rarely see it in wine shops. Exactly. Like, why do you think that is, man? Well, I think one is that definitely in terms of the production of Rioja, most of it is red wine and then a small, small, small percentage is rosé and white. I honestly think the other reason is that weirdly a lot of, a not insignificant number of people's introduction to white Rioja is through Lopez y Heredia, which is like a classic, classic producer. Yeah. But they don't like, they age their wine for like a decade before they release it. And most people are just not like that style of, of wine period. And especially in the white and in the rosé category is so hard for people to kind of like, uh, you know, just kind of get their heads around. It's like, you know, there's almost no fruit character. It's very oxidative, very nutty and salty. And like, it's good. But it's a little more analogous to drinking like sherry or something like that than it is right. drinking what most people think of as white wine. And so I think if you are, if that's because that wine has become very, you know, kind of popular for Psalms to put on lists and it's kind of a cool wine and all that, if that's your point of introduction to white Rioja, like you're going to be like, oh, okay, this is not for me. And I, you know, uh, I don't know the specific one you mentioned, Joanna, but like there are a lot of them out there that are really good and not, you know, I mean, the Lopez Hiredi is a wine I like, but it's not a wine I would drink very often. Um, and, but I do think that in general, like uh, the white wines from Spain, you know, from Rioja, from Ribeiro del Tuero, et cetera, are underappreciated because they don't have the cachet that the red wines do. And, you know, they're made from varieties that people aren't that familiar with. I mean, this is a story of lots of regions in Europe. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just there's not a lot of it made. And then people's point of introduction is a weird wine. Very interesting. Zach, what about you, man? No white Riojas for me lately, honestly. Um, although now that you've said it, I'm like, do I have one somewhere in this house? Maybe I do. Uh, anyhow, um, I think f- uh, the thing that I had most recently uh, that I really enjoyed was a uh, a hazy IPA. Uh, you know, we're getting to that time of year for me. Uh, since we started talking about them on the podcast, I've become a fan. Um, and uh, this is from uh, Fremont Brewing. A friend of mine works there, brought over some of their uh, head full of dynamite, which is like okay. A- they do a series. Um, so they do, it's like every, 
every release is different. So it's like, you know, they're all kind of labeled under the head full of dynamite label, but they're each one is a different recipe with, you know, different hops or a different amount of various things, blah, blah, blah. I haven't been able to kind of bring myself to dive too deeply into that. So that was the, was exciting. And then the other thing, and, and you got, you all listeners will get more of this down the road. I just interviewed yesterday, uh, Matt Hoffman, who is the distiller at Westland Distilling here in Seattle, uh, who is, um, I, I mean, I think what Westland is doing is uh, that they're some of the most uh, kind of bold and, and um, risk-taking distillers in, in whiskey in the world, really. And um, I tried their just released Calare, which is a uh, single malt that they are making based on entirely on non-commodity varieties, uh, a non-commodity variety of, of barley. And you can hear a lot more about this if you listen to that episode, which will come out like probably in a month. Uh, so, you know, set your calendars, but, uh, but it is uh, a really interesting product and, and designed around creating a sort of a, a different uh, economic reality for, for farmers, um, for uh, maltsters and for distillers around these uh, varieties of barley that have been sort of pushed aside because they don't fit the commodity system, even if they have lots to recommend them. So hmm. that was really cool. Okay. Lesson. Okay, cool. <laughs> What about you, Adam? Oh, gosh, what about me? So I had a really amazing experience on Sunday night, and I snagged a reservation at Gage and Tolner, which is a new but old restaurant that just opened in Brooklyn. So, so hot. Gage, oh, it's so hot right now. It um, <laughs> It was opened in the 1800s, and actually there were people that had said, uh, you know, in the you know 40s, 50s, et cetera, like Gage and Toner was the reason to go to Brooklyn. So it was a wow. really famous chop house that was located on um, Fulton Street in Brooklyn. And Fulton Mall was the first pedestrian mall in New York. So it's really close to downtown. It's basically, it is downtown Brooklyn. Um, and like the Fulton Mall starts from Borough Hall, which is where the borough president of New York sits. For those of you that don't know that our boroughs have presidents too. Although I feel like every borough knows their president except for Manhattan. I had no clue who the Manhattan borough president was. Does like Joanna in- know as a Manhattanite? <laughs> yeah. Do you know who the, the Manhattan borough president is, Joanna? I do not. Exactly. I never did either. But like, like once you move to another borough, they're like, oh yeah, your, your borough president is X person. You're like, ah, cool. But so it's, it's right down, like, you know, it starts at Borough Hall and then runs to uh, Flatbush and it's this pedestrian mall. And there was this, there's this very historic building on the mall where Gage and Tolner has always been, you know, located. And so it was in operation for obviously decades, decades, decades. And then it closed I think sometime in the nineties and it kind of just sent sat vacant. Um, and as legend has it, Sinjin, uh, who is the also owner of gosh, Sinjin Frizzle also owns, um, a bar in, um, Red Hook and Fort Defiance. And he basically was apparently like in the area. I was like, huh, it's kind of a bummer that you can't get a really good cocktail in, this area of Brooklyn. And then he saw the, you know, the space and was like, Oh, I want to bring it back to life. So anyways, he's brought it back to life with the, the team behind Insa, which is also a really hot restaurant in Gowanus. And it is just this amazing restaurant. It's super cool. It basically is, they've, they've kind of taken a lot of the classic dishes the chop house used to have. So, you know, you can obviously think, you know, copious amounts of shellfish and steak. But they also have a lot of really like modern twists on things. 
which are really delicious. And then of course the cocktail program is amazing. And so basically I had two ridiculously amazing cocktails. I had a perfect uh, martini, which was delicious. So it was, you know, and he made it in the 50, 50 style. Mm -hmm. So it was equal parts gin and the vermouths, but then as a perfect martini, you split the vermouth in equal parts. So it was half sweet, half dry. Uh, really delicious and like the perfect way to start the meal. And then we had ordered actually a bottle of, um, I'm going to butcher the name now, Zach, Costier de Nimes. Costier de Nimes, yeah. Costier de Nimes, yeah. Um, wine for like the mains, but we were, you know, we had finished our first cocktails at the bar before we were seated. And so they recommended, you know, that we get another cocktail sort of for an, another aperitif with the appetizers. And Sinjin is actually known for the daiquiri. Oh, and so uh, we ordered his daiquiri. Adam's official cocktail of the year. So, and it was really, really awesome. And yeah, it is my official cocktail of forever now. I kind of just only want to make daiquiris. So again, (laughs) if you listen to this podcast, wait, 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 look, man, if you you listen to this podcast and you make rum and you want to send me some rum to make daiquiris with, I'm not going (laughs) to say no. Wait, does that mean you've given you've you've demoted the Negroni? I demoted the Negroni a long time ago. Really. Huh? Yeah, I feel I like stopped. you talked a lot more about Negronis and daiquiris until about a year ago, which is fine. It's too mainstream now, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Also, I just kind of got tired of it. Like, it yeah. just it. I made it a lot, and I yeah, I just got tired of it. I still like it once in a while. I had it. Um, I, I did have a Negroni recently. Um, actually, on Friday night <laughs> when I <laughs> when I took my I took my niece out to dinner, and that was adorable, five. by the way. Yeah. Ugh. And uh, it was, you know, it was like a, a, a neighborhood Italian restaurant. And like, that was the, the cocktail on the list. So I was like, okay, cool. I have a Negroni. And I got her a mocktail and she loved nice. it. Yeah. But like, yeah, I just don't think I'm, I don't make them as much as I used to. I, they're too boozy for me. I mean, I get that a daiquiri is boozy too, but I just feel like, I don't know. I, I don't drink them as much as I used to. I drink a lot more cocktails now where the, where the, you know, the mixer is fruit, fresh fruit juice than I do where it's all booze. And I used to be really a very much like all boozy cocktail person. Uh-huh. And now I've definitely switched to like fresh fruit juice cocktail person. Does that make sense? Jenna, what do you think? What, what kind of, what kind of cocktails do you prefer? That's a good question. I like, I don't really discriminate. I feel like I probably, <laughs> <laughs> I probably tend towards boozier cocktails as well. I like a drink on the rocks versus something long or up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, I, Love a Manhattan, a perfect yeah, Manhattan. I, do too. I really like. So that was I'm curious. Maybe you to should try uh, one. <laughs> name one after your borough president whenever we figure out who they are. Gail Brewer. Wait, oh, you, you looked, looked it up. up. <laughs> I looked, first I looked it up. <laughs> there you go. Um, and I didn't mention, but I should. The, the other cool thing about Gage and Tolner is that on the second floor, they're opening this place called Sunken Harbor Club. It's supposed to launch sometime this summer. It's going to be like a a speakeasy tiki bar. Oh. Which I think is going to be super cool and really fun. So, yeah, are it was, they going to do awesome. to go cocktails, Adam? Well, I mean, that's what we're going to talk about right now. I know, Zach. So, yeah, I mean, look, we talked about these before, but I think it's it's a good time to revisit the world of to go cocktails and sort of what the future for them in you know entails. Like, is is there a future for to go cocktails? Was this? I mean, we've obviously argued a lot that they should be made permanent. I think a lot of places have or are in the process of making them permanent, a lot of states. But then the question becomes like, was it a pandemic thing? Or do we think to-go cocktails 
are going to be something that people order regularly. And it's a conversation I'm interested in having. So both of you, what do you think? Joanna? Well, I'm actually curious to know, Adam, from you, if you've talked to any like restaurant owners or bartenders about it and if they really think that it's a viable or a necessary path or revenue stream at this point. So that's what's really interesting is that I feel like some people do, but the ones that are a fan of them, I have found are people who are located near parks, Mm. are like sort of in family neighborhoods. I've seen that they've kept their to-go cocktail programs pretty active. So one of the bars I'm thinking of is Elsa, which is located on Atlantic Avenue. They created like a whole to-go cocktail program, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so like they do a lot of like frozen drinks in sort of those, you know, plastic juice bottles you're used to getting that used to have really sugary juices or like milk. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? They're like the thin slender plastic bottle that has the plastic top that you take the weird ring off of it. Yeah. (laughs) So they're still doing it and they're really close to like Brooklyn Bridge Park and they're also located in Cobble Hill where there's a lot of families. So I could see like someone on their way home picking up some cocktails, you know, to take for dinner um, instead of like having to deal with making them. But then other places that we're doing them a lot, I don't see as much. Um, And I think, look, a lot of people I've talked to have said they're happy to continue to do anything that will will bring revenue in for the business. But there's also like how much do you want to take away from now all the activity that's happening at a lot of these bars? So do you have time to also focus on a to-go cocktail program? And I think it's one thing if you're focusing on it, like anyone's now going to be willing to make you a to-go cocktail if you show up and ask to take something home, right? So like if if we walk by a bar and like, oh, let's just like see if they'll give us them in styrofoam cups. Most people will now. But my my sort of curiosity in all this is like what about the delivery to go cocktail game uh-huh. like, is that gonna stay because we're doing a vine pear picnic tomorrow um sorry zach <laughs> that's okay and i i looked for cocktails to order for the picnic and it was really hard to find anyone in my area anymore doing like large format like really hard and I also didn't like really know where to go look. Like I looked on Seamless, I looked on Caviar, like, and so I was like, okay, because I'm I'm going to be setting up for the picnic, so I kind of do need them delivered. I mean, I understand that delivery is not great for these places, and that I probably should go pick it up, but like, I just I'm not going to be able to. And there was a lot of single serves, but the single serves were also like pretty expensive, right? We we're thinking like thirteen to fifteen dollars a cocktail. There was one place which I do love, the High High Room, who was doing. Um, doubles, but they were 22 bucks a double, you know? And so I was like, huh, I really would love to do this, but I I found it a lot harder than I thought I would. Like, I thought it'd be super cool. Like, hey guys, welcome to the picnic. By the way, there's, you know, I, I got a few large format cocktails from X great New York City, you know, Brooklyn bar, but I yeah. just didn't find it as easily as early on the pandemic when everyone was doing that and delivering it to your home in, you know, large 750 milliliter bottles. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I wonder if a lot of this is just, we got to the point where people, where the bulk of the population could reasonably feel safe going back into a bar, I think a lot quicker than than we thought a year ago. You know, I mean, Adam, when you and I first were discussing this, we thought that to-go cocktails would become more established because I think we both re- re- uh, reasonably thought that 2021 
especially the spring, summer, fall would be more like 2020 where, you know, yeah, people would want to do things together. They'd want to go to parks. They'd want to congregate, but it wasn't going to be safe for them to necessarily dine indoors or drink indoors. And that, yeah, there are places that had outdoor bars, but they were crowded. They were going to have to have, you know, social distancing in place or should try to at least. And the honest truth is just like, we got to a point where back the vaccines were widely available to people wonderfully a lot quicker than we thought. But it does mean that to go cocktails, I, I am of the opinion that they are going to, uh, by and large, have already become and, and will remain this like interesting relic of this period. Because in the end, is, I think you made some good points, Adam, and, and I would add just one more, which is in addition to the challenge of how do you produce and staff and support a program that is you know not in the space that you're you're used to serving people that is oriented around delivery or to go and and obviously those especially delivery are less profitable than than to go or in person the other reality is and i think we saw this that like putting together to go cocktails required a different set of um potentially ingredients a different set of you know sort of styles of cocktails that would work well and i think that what we're seeing is you know people want the bar experience that they've been missing. And that is what's going to, is what's driving, you know, business right now for places that are reopening. It's not, uh, yeah, it's, you know, maybe there are still people who want to have a get together in the park, but I mean, more and more of my friends, that's like my Instagram feed every day is like more and more people taking shots in bars. Um, yeah. Not, well, both literally taking shots of liquor, but also like taking pictures of themselves in bars. <laughs> and it's clearer there. Uh, and, and I think it's like, you know, a thing that we've all learned out of this is that in the end, like, yes, it's great to have flexibility and to have the ability to get things delivered at home, especially when for most people, there isn't another way to consume. But, you know, as we also suspected, the moment it became safe or safe-ish or kind of safe or at least allowed, people are going to beat down the doors to do what they had been missing. And I think we are seeing that for sure. Mm-hmm. Adriana, what do you think? Yeah, I... I agree with all of that. I also think that just in terms of viable revenue stream, like seeing other places keep up their to-go cocktail program, but like PDT now has a cocktail club and you can pay money to, to, you know, to be, have this membership and to get four to-go cocktails from PDT, which is really cool because that also brings in this element of like access to places like that. Um, so why wouldn't you want to get a PDT cocktail at home? Yes, there's the whole experience of going to that bar, but if you can't, you can have it at home. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Like, right, if it's it's especially for the really big name bars, like are you gonna are you gonna fight to get in or do you just wanna be able to have their high quality cocktails at home? I I also, you know, hope it stays somewhat because when I do order in you know once in a while on a friday or saturday night it it has been fun to have cocktails come with the food um that's been a blast especially the places that have taken it more seriously like the high high room so like you know their cocktails come in a can that they've just canned you know before they send it out and then you you know open the can and pour it over ice and sometimes they send you know a big cube with the the meal which has been cool, right? The, the disappointing experiences are like when it comes in like that paper, uh, you know, corner coffee cart cup and like a big yeah. cube with the plan. And you're like, okay, well, this was still 15 bucks. This isn't as fun. Um, but the places that have figured it out, I think, and package it well, 
I would love for them to keep, you know, keep it going, you know, forever. And I wonder if that's going to be more of the restaurants than the famous cocktail bars, right? Because the famous cocktail bars aren't really known for food. Whereas the, the, the restaurants like high, high room are right. And happen to also have good cocktail programs. The other thing I wonder is throughout this year, we all got really excited about to go cocktails, but we also all discovered RTDs. I was just going to say this. Can these compete with these this growing offering of RTDs, and some of which are very good? Yeah, I don't know. Because yeah, for the picnic tomorrow, I bought RTDs. Like mm-hmm. Aster had them and I bought a bunch of spritzes and gin and tonics. Like, so yeah, I, I wonder if like it just kind of happened at the same time, right? And the RTD is just way more convenient and you can get it in a lot of different places. I don't know. Because there's some really good ones. You're right. There's some really good ones. Like, Zach, are you seeing more RTDs near you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fascinating thing for me about this is it's always a little bit hard to say where where they shade into one another a little bit, right? Because what you're describing, Adam, where the bar is canning it and sending mm-hmm. it to you, you know, presumably that can has a relatively limited shelf life, depending on what all is in the cocktail, if it's, yeah. you know, got fruit juice or whatever. But, you know, you could probably stick it in your fridge and have it in a week. I would imagine it would be just fine. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of these RTDs have a shelf life too. I mean, hopefully a longer one than that. But, you know, it is kind of like, well, are we just kind of, are, are we differentiating these two things because of where the point of origin is? But the, but the frank, the, but the use case and the experience is pretty similar. And I think that what's cool is, you know, I would love to see, like, I think there are, are great opportunities for to-go cocktails from a smaller cocktail bar or restaurant in some of the situations that you described, um, Adam. So they're, you know, proximate to places where people would want to drink outside and they're certainly not going to lug, you know, multiple bottles with them to, you know, mix a cocktail at a picnic or whatever, but, but something that's easy to get to and, um, you know, or something that's, that's close by and that can give them everything they need in a single serve or a couple of serving size is going to be big. The other big unknown about all this, and I think this is where we we will just have to wait and see also, is like we all saw in the last year that like whatever rules, whatever laws were um, put in place for, you know, sort of public consumption of alcohol were mostly not enforced in a lot of parts of America. Because, again, people, it was sort of widely recognized that like people are going to want to gather, they're going to want to drink. The only safe place to do this is outside. We're just, it's not a priority to enforce. Will that maintain once People can, you know, once drinking can, can and has gone back indoors, um, I, that is an impossible question, I think, for us to answer. And of course, will vary depending on where in the country you're talking about. But this very thing you're talking about doing, having a picnic with cocktails and stuff, like there's lots of places in the country where that is technically illegal. And um, and so the, the, the viability of to-go cocktails is also tied into whether that primary use case is even allowed. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point because I... I don't know. I, I don't know what, you, what both of you think, you know, think about this, but like I I definitely feel like the only way to go cocktails have a future is if alfresco drinking becomes legalized. Yeah. Like if we can become more like Europe and walk on the street drinking a beer or sitting in the park having a bottle of wine or a cocktail, then I think more people will buy cocktails to go, right? New York City was just not enforcing it. But then, you know, I was seeing on social media last week people who were saying they were getting ticketed in Manhattan. Wow. Now, that's yeah. not happening in Brooklyn, at least not yet. 
but there was definitely like people on on the west side highway that park is it just what what is that park called it's like you know just like all along the west side highway like like west of chelsea and the west village hudson yards and stuff hudson river hudson river park yeah we're like we're saying they were getting ticketed wow I think someone someone needs to reach out to Gail Brewer and figure out what's going on. Yeah, seriously. It's a $25 ticket. And I'm also like, don't the cops have like, m- you know, more important things to do? And also at this point, like if it's legal to smoke weed outside, then yeah. maybe we can have a drink. Like it just yeah. – that also like doesn't make a lot it, – it seems very backwards. Like we've now legalized marijuana and it can be consumed in New York anywhere that cigarettes are smoked, which is a – all, you know, lots of places. I mean, I guess in city parks, you're technically not allowed to smoke, but everyone does. But like, I'm smell, I smell lots of cannabis when I go outside. <laughs> so like, maybe let people have uh, a cocktail. Last weekend on Sunday, I was walking through Fort Green Park and there was this guy who's dressed, he was wearing suspenders, a bow tie, one of those white sort of like, you know, prohibition era, uh, short sleeve button up shirts okay. and a cap. And he was pulling a wheelbarrow and he had water you know, in the wheelbarrow. And then when you'd walk by him, he'd say, cocktails, cocktails, cocktails. <laughs> and I stopped him and he had under the water Negronis, Afro <laughs> uh, <laughs> spritzes. It was awesome. I was like, this dude is the best. I kind of want to write about him. I got to go try to find him again. I hope he comes back to the park this weekend. Maybe I'll see him. But um, I was like, dude. And like, smart. again, it was super smart. And he told me he was an out of work bartender. And he uh-huh. was and he was making more money this way than he had been working at a bar. There you go. So I was like, man, this is smart. Like the beaches of New York, people have been trying to sell, you know, things like nutcrackers and stuff Crackers, like that for yeah. years, you know. So let this dude sell Negronis instead. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that the only way that happens is alfresco, right? Or or, or I, else. I can't believe you didn't ask him if he had a daiquiri, Adam. I I, I should have. <laughs> ah. You didn't I tell feel like that, I just failed. You didn't tell him that Adam Teeter says the Gronies are dead. Where are your daiquiris? I feel like you, this is a missed opportunity. You guys are going to like make me like Adam Teeter says the <laughs> Gronies are dead. Yeah. It's Hopefully someone article. someone picks that up. I'm totally – I'm going to I'm gonna get like an email from Campari being like, thanks, thanks Adam Teeter. The Negroni's not dead. I just don't make it that much. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that like the vision I have, right, and I think it kind of is maybe not exactly your um, – very stylishly attired gentleman walking through the park. But the vision I have is, is that if, if to go cocktails as we've kind of conceived of them have a future, it is actually kind of like that. It's little stands. It's maybe a window at the side of a restaurant or bar. It's a, it's a part of a broader landscape of alcohol consumption in this country. We're like, yeah, walking down the street, having a drink is not viewed as like some great moral panic. You know, it is, it's not necessarily the drunken debauchery of, you know, Bourbon Street or something in New Orleans. But it's like a thing that adults can do because we're adults and like we like, you know, it's not, you know, you're not any more of a liability to people if you get, you know, wasted in a bar and then stagger out into the street versus if you have a drink in the street. And hopefully people are consuming much more responsibly than that. And it would allow for, you know, who knows what could come out of this, right? You could have one of the great, one of the best cocktails in in New York City could be something that a guy makes you know, at a stand in the middle of a park in, you know, in the middle of Queens or something. And like, that could be a really cool thing, you know, uh, like the food truck model, but taken to cocktails. And obviously there are issues of some of this, there's licensing, there's, you know, uh, food safety, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is real. I understand that. But like, in the end, the the thing that I don't love about just saying like, oh, RTDs will cover it all. is like, 
as we've discussed on the podcast before and covering a lot of next rounds, any of these categories are liable to see them like dominated by a few big brands. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. You know, those big brands have a lot of, of power and, and they have the ability to crowd the market. But like, I don't want my only options for uh, a sort of pre-made ready to drink cocktail, whether that's, you know, I buy it at a store or get it from a bar to be, you know, the same six brands that dominate almost everything else. Like I want there yeah. to be diversity for my own sake and for the sake of people who want to come up and try and make a go of it. And so, you know, facilitating that is, I think, something that should be considered a a goal of, you know, uh, New York City, Seattle, places all over the country. That makes sense. That's I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's, uh, ah, it would just be nice if we, yeah, we, we didn't, we allowed this stuff to happen and we allowed people to be treated as adults. Well, maybe finally we will get to that point. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, like, I, I mean, every single every single college town with a football team turns a, bli- a blind eye to drinking in public every Saturday in the fall. Yep. You know what I mean? Like every, it's like every, every place like turns a blind eye every once in a while. It's like, so why is it okay then, but not okay other times? Like just let people be adults. Yep. I don't know. Anyways, guys, this was fun. I mean, Joanna, first podcast, what'd you think? Fun. Had a great time. I mean, Zach talks a lot. You guys are a riot. (laughs) You'll come back and join us again next week, we hope? Yes. Awesome. I'm invited. (laughs) Sweet, you are. Well, so then I will see you both next week. Great. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.